nice to your teachers. Learn lots about Jesus. Come back better kids. I am. But everything is possible with God, right? Today's message is unique. Two Sundays ago, I was sitting right over there, and it was during the uh, offertory song, and God gave me this message, and then I had to get up and preach the message I was prepared to preach that day. And so I had it all set for next week, and last week, if you remember, we had snow and everything else, and I was like, no, I need to uh, present this message when we can all be in the same building, and so it got pushed back, all according to God's timing. Nothing is coincidence. Um, but I'm going to ask that the stone you received at the door, that you hold it in your hand throughout the service, okay? Hold on to your stone. If you didn't get a stone where you've got more stones in the back, we'll get you a stone. But hold on to your stone. Now, I know that that may be weird, and that's okay, and I know how dangerous a request this is to enter into a sanctuary as I'm delivering a message from God's Word and ask you to hold stones. The irony is not beyond me. <laughs> it is faith. But today is a very unique and special day, and, and it can be a turning point. I don't mean to be a, a high emotion here or exaggerate, but I really believe for some of you today, it can be a turning point and a moment that you'll never forget. Uh, and as always, let me remind you that what you get out of the service is entirely up to you. It's your choice as to how you respond to God's Word. He's here. He loves you. He's called you here. He wants to meet with you. And so it's up to you as to how you're going to receive it. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. We're in the Lenten season studying and, and seeking to experience the message and life of Jesus Christ in these 40 days prior to his death on the cross and his resurrection, promising us life eternally. And uh, this Lenten season is all about self-reflection. It's all about who am I and how has Jesus changed my life? So two weeks ago, we talked about the disciples seeing Jesus in his glory at the Mount of Transfiguration. Last week, we talked about Jesus' challenge of becoming disciples and what that really looks like. And so today, we're going to continue on that same process. We're going to look at another event that happened within those last 40 days. But before that, we're going to take a detour, a slight detour, and hear a familiar passage. We're going to hear its truth. We're going to experience um, some things about it. And then we're going to go back into those last 40 days. John 8, 1 through 11. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back again at the temple. A crowd stood, a, a crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. 
Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with a woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, Neither do I. Go and sin no more. Lord, I pray that you would bless the message today. Let your Holy Spirit bring revelation to our hearts and minds. You've inspired it. You've protected and preserved it. Even now, as we read the words off the page and I speak it with my voice, it's your word, your life-changing, transforming word that's speaking to our hearts. And so, Lord, as you often told in the parables, it's the condition of our heart that allows the word to penetrate. So, God, let the heart uh, of our life be soft, pliable soil this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. What always moves me in this passage is the beauty of the love of Jesus in contrast to the lack of love and even consideration of the religious Pharisees. I mean, they literally catch this woman in the act of adultery. She has been unfaithful to her husband, a bad example to her children. She has broken the covenant with her husband in a selfish act, and now her sin is exposed for everyone to see. I know I just listed a bunch of things, but let's just stop and feel with this woman a second. All of us hate being caught in our sin. All of us have our, hate having our sin exposed to anyone, much less a crowd. And then the, the guilt, the, the, the shame, everything pouring in at once. There is no grace from these religious Pharisees. In their mind, this woman is not a woman. It doesn't matter what her name is or her story. She is a pawn in their game to trap Jesus, who has revealed their own sin of greed for power and selfishness, and they use her to try to destroy Jesus. Let me ask you a question. Is your faith kind of like this? Is your faith a list of do's and don'ts that if you follow the good things, then you'll go to heaven and you you break God's law, you go to hell? Is it impersonal? Is it uncaring? Is it rigid? Is your faith full of comparison where you're looking at other believers constantly as to what you should and shouldn't do instead of looking to Jesus? If so, let's just, as we look in the mirror, let's just say maybe we're more like the Pharisees than we want to admit. Now, were the Pharisees wrong in their judgment that this woman was deserving of death? And the clear answer is no, they were not wrong. Deuteronomy 22.22 says, If a man is discovered committing adultery, both he and the woman must die. In this way you will purge Israel of such evil. That's pretty straightforward. In fact, uh, Deuteronomy continues on and goes through some more specifics, specific situations of how that situation may play out. But, but let's get real for a second, okay? Let's just pause here and realize that Romans 6.23 says, the wages of all sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, before we create a tier system of sin, let's realize 
that if it weren't for an act of grace, we'd all be dead, right? I mean, in reality, our streets should be covered with the bodies of the dead if we all were to follow the letter of the law. And if many of you are like me, and you know me, I would have never made it out of childhood, right, Deborah? I would have never become your pastor. There might be a marker somewhere here, lies Nathan Williamson because of his terrible, whatever. But we're also quick to target other people, aren't we? Quick to point out their sins. So that no one will look more deeply into our sins and faults and shortcomings. We dodge, we deflect, we change the conversation. We're really well versed in that. That's American politics, right? Not just in D.C., but the church as well. The scripture says that one by one, the accusers drop their stones. I'll get to there in a second. I'm jumping ahead of myself. So the Pharisees seek to trap Jesus with a quandary. If he says, kill her, then the people may revolt against him for his lack of grace. And if he says, let her go, then it can't be righteous because he's breaking the law. Let's just stop right here. If your goal is to prove Jesus right or wrong, you've got the wrong perspective. The law was meant to help people and to not hurt them. The law was meant to show us the character of God and who we're supposed to be. So if you're in your religious practices, in your faith with Jesus, you are caring less for people, you are showing less grace and less love and more judgment than you're doing it the wrong way. So Jesus has asked this question. He's put in this, this quandary, this tough situation. And what does he do? He starts drawing in the dust. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us what he's drawing or what he's writing. We don't know a thing. We knew the Pharisees are getting pretty frustrated, right? Like, we asked you a question, and you're not giving us an answer, and you're just writing in the dust. And I'm sure they're sending daggers at him with their eyes as he's writing in the dust. So I, can't not, I cannot substantively tell you today I know what Jesus was writing, but here's my best guess. I think he's looking at the Pharisees surrounding, and he's writing their names. And then he's writing the women that they committed adultery with themselves. Maybe he's listing the names of the men that have committed adultery with this very same woman. Or he's just writing their sins. Either way, whatever he's doing on the ground matches what he says next. For he says, all right, let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. He doesn't disagree with them or that the consequence of her sin is deserving of death. He doesn't make his answer about the woman caught in adultery. Instead, his answer targets the one accusing her. And then he goes right back to writing in the dust. No eye contact, no further discussion, no engagement. And the Pharisees holding in their hand the stones are left with the question. Let me just pause here. Maybe you've wondered this. I'm sure you have. How do they catch her in the act? And where's the man? Let me tell you something. In our culture, and in our system, 
it seems like the women are punished much more than the men for this kind of act. Both are guilty, according to Deuteronomy 22.22. I wonder, and again, I, I can't say this absolutely, but I wonder if she was caught in adultery because one of the Pharisees was actually with her. And in order to cover over his sin, they're, they're asking for her death to cover over their own indiscretions. Now, look at what you're holding in your hand. Starting to make more sense now, right? This is the stone you received at the door. You have a right to see people receive the consequences of their sins and shortcomings. They deserve it. The people that have harmed you physically and emotionally deserve to pay. And I am not about to minimize what you've gone through in life. I would not do that. I don't dare to do that. Whether it, in my mind it compares to what I've gone through, it doesn't matter. What does matter is that you guys, in your minds and in your hearts, have been irreparably damaged. And there are people that you are struggling to forgive because of what they've done to you. And they deserve the punishment for their actions. And so the law tells us that they deserve death, and they have a right, and you have a right to see it done. But just like Jesus, I want you to consider something. As you turn this rock over in your hand, maybe look at it while I'm talking to you. Are you the one to make them pay? Is there anyone, possibly in this room, that has every right of chucking this rock at your head? And they haven't. Are you willing to take a beating simply because you won't relinquish your right to see someone else pay? So let's do the same thing that Jesus did to the Pharisees. Let's take our focus off the one you want to throw the stone at and put the focus on ourselves. The scripture says that one by one, the accusers drop their stones First the oldest, who were far more aware of their sin, and then the youngest. Meanwhile, the crowd still is around observing. This is, this is a show. This is, a, this is entertaining. Let's see what happens to this woman. If there's only one righteous person in the world who can make a final judgment on this woman, it's Jesus. What's he going to do? And so he's here writing. Still, can you imagine? Just, again, in your mind, create the setting. He's not looking around. He's just writing in the dust. And he hears thunk, thunk, thunk as the stones drop. And then after a little while, he doesn't hear any more stones dropping. He looks up, looks around, dusts off his fingers, says to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? She answers, no, Lord. Now, this is who we, the church, are supposed to be. A group of individuals aware of our own sin and shortcomings to the point where a person in need won't stand condemned to death but be received and invited on a journey of faith. 
I want covenant to be a place where no one feels like lightning's going to strike them as soon as they enter the door. I want covenant to be a place where the roof won't fall in on anybody. I want covenant to be a place where no one comes in here and gets one of these looks. I want covenant to be a place where we immediately say, it's good to see you whether you look like me or not, whether I know your history or not. I want you to walk the journey with me because I know and am aware of my own sin and my own faults and I'm walking the journey myself. No one living by the letter of the law considers what brought this woman to the point where she was willing to give her body away to one who was not her husband. Let's just stop and consider, was she abused as a young lady or a child? Would no one have her in that culture because she'd been raped? Maybe she'd never known love before. Maybe she didn't even have parents that ever showed her affection. Maybe she's so desperate for food or clothing or shelter that the only way that she can provide for herself and her family is to give herself away. We're not told any of that. But what I want to say today is that Jesus sees all of us truly. We're made in his image and we are his loving creation. If Jesus could do a background check on any of us today, and by the way, he does. He knows our backgrounds. And he sees the list of our sins and our faults and our flaws and where we come from and, and generational sin and, and, our, and our prison record and all the rest. Do you know what he says? I want him. I want him. I want to adopt this one and that one and that one and that one and that one. I want them to have my name and my inheritance and be part of my family. That's the God that we serve. He says, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Now this is where this passage gets taken out of context, right? He doesn't say that her sin is okay. And he doesn't accept and encourage her lifestyle. Instead, he says, I'm going to give you a choice. I'm going to give you grace. I'm not going to condemn you. But I'm going to give you a challenge. Go and sin no more. So, if the eternal judge the most righteous individual in all of existence, shows grace to her and to us, what should we do with other people? Look at the rock. What will you do with it? It's your right to hold it. It's your right to hold it. But is it freeing you or killing you? Now, turn to John chapter 12. Let me share the importance of this next biblical account we're going to read. We know that the full uh, story that we have of Jesus' life and ministry is recorded in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each author tells us what they deemed essential for us to know in future generations so that we could have enough to follow the faith. John's Gospel ends by telling us that if everything that Jesus did was recorded on the clouds, there wouldn't be enough clouds. So it's not an exhaustive list of everything that Jesus ever did. And so some Gospels relate some truths, and some Gospels relate others. But, but very rarely do all four Gospels tell us the same story. All of them tell us about Jesus' death and resurrection. Now the story that we're about to read 
is included in all four Gospels. Now, some scholars debate whether or not these are two different events, two different stories. In my own research, in my own study, I don't think that there's any uh, evidence that's contradictory. I think each person's personal perspective adds another layer to the story. And so that's how I'm going to approach it today. John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Six days before the Passover celebration began, Jesus arrived in Bethany, the home of Lazarus, the man he had raised from the dead. A dinner was being prepared in Jesus' honor. Martha served, and Lazarus was among those who ate with him. Then Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made from the essence of nard, and she anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance. But Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray him, said that perfume was worth a year's wages. It shouldn't be sold and the money given to the poor. It should have been sold and the money given to the poor. Now that he cared, not that he cared for the poor, he was a thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. Jesus replied, leave her alone. She did this in preparation for my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. This is a beautiful picture in Jesus' last days of Mary, the sister of Lazarus, six days prior to the Passover, anointing Jesus' feet with this precious perfume worth a year's wage and wiping his feet with her hair. This is one of the most extravagant expressions of love in all of Scripture. I don't know of many more deeply intimate pictures that you can find in Scripture of what Mary is doing here. She's giving her most valuable possession, her retirement, to Jesus in a moment. As Judah says, it looks like waste. She's taking her most beautiful part of her body, her hair, and wiping his feet off. The dirt, the grime, the other stuff that gets on your feet, she's cleaning it with her hair. To those watching, it can seem like it's pretty gross and disgusting. Some of you people just can't even look at other people's feet, right? It's like, oh, feet are gross, right? She is engaged with Jesus' feet, focused, just loving on him. Some in those rooms, let's, let's put ourselves in this room as well. Let's use our imagination again, you know? Create a setting in your mind. Would you be uncomfortable? Well, that's way too intimate for me. But the expression is unavoidable because the fragrance of the nard in the room is permeating and you can't take your eyes off of it. Finally, Judas speaks out. He's complaining about the waste. We could have sold that and given it to the poor and, and we're, we get the picture of the fact that he doesn't care about the poor. He, he handles the money in the group and, and he wants to steal from the group. But Jesus lets those in the room know that this gift, this perfume, was always intended for him. It was meant for his burial. And so as we get the picture during the resurrection story of the women going to the tomb to apply spices to Jesus' dead body, the spices were intended to protect and preserve the body, yes, but also to cover up the smell of rotting flesh. The irony about this is, why save it for that moment when the smell of rotting flesh will never touch Jesus' body? 
Maybe she understood something that his disciples didn't even understand at this point. I'm not wasting it for then. I'm going to use it now. Now, it's a nice story. It's powerful in its own way. But there are layers to this. Matthew 26 and Mark 14 records that this event happened in Bethany, but at a different specific place. It happened at the home of Simon the leper. Now, if we know anything about leprosy, it's that a person that has leprosy does not have a home. They don't live in a community. They would have to move into a leper colony and stay there until they died. So the fact that Simon the leper has a home in Bethany means that most likely Simon was a leper but has been healed by Jesus. Luke's gospel doesn't record that Simon was a leper, but it does record that Simon was a Pharisee. The rest of Matthew's and Mark's gospels are similar, except she pours the oil on his head, and when the remark is made about the waste and the expense, it doesn't record that Judas said it, it says that some of the disciples did. But both end with a similar statement from Mark 14, 6-9. But Jesus replied, leave her alone. Why criticize her for doing such a good thing to me? You will always have the poor among you, and you can help them whenever you want to, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could and has anointed my body for burial ahead of time. I tell you the truth, wherever the good news is preached throughout the world, this woman's deed will be remembered and discussed. And so now we're getting a bigger, deeper picture of what's going on in Bethany that day. Now Luke's gospel will bring it full circle for us. Luke 7, 36 through 50. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him, so Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from that city heard that he, heard he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. Then Jesus answered his thought, Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. Then Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other. But neither of them could repay him, so he kindly forgave both, them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you her sins and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love, but a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. 
Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. The men at the table said among themselves, who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. When you put all the passages of Scripture together, it seems pretty clear that the woman who was anointing Jesus' feet and crying over them and washing them with her hair was Mary, the sister of Lazarus. Now we know about Mary and her sister Martha and their brother Lazarus, that they were friends with Jesus. They ate meals with him and taught in their home. And and a a few days prior to Jesus dying on the cross and rising again, God rose Jesus rose Lazarus from the grave. But I'd never thought of Mary having the reputation of being an immoral woman. I only knew her as a friend of Jesus. Now, I cannot prove that Mary was the woman who was caught in adultery on that fateful day and rescued by Jesus outside the temple in Jerusalem. I can't. But let's just assume in this moment that she was. How did God's grace in that moment when she was caught in her sin and deserving of death change the rest of her life? She heard him, she believed him, and she sinned no more. Now, from that moment... To this, she's a friend of Jesus. She's looked deeply into his eyes, eaten meals with him, and sat at his feet and heard him teach. Again, paint the picture in your mind. She's brought before Jesus and tossed in the dirt. She's on her hands and knees, crying and shaking uncontrollably because she knows the full consequence of her sin is coming. Her hair is in her face. All she can see is the feet of Jesus in front of her, and she doesn't know what the next moment is going to bring. And now, she's on her hands and feet. And all she can see is the feet of Jesus. And those tears of fear are now tears of joy. Cried on Jesus' feet. Now that dust and grime that was in her hair as she was thrown to the earth, she's willingly putting on her hair as she wipes off Jesus' feet. Same position, different perspective. Now she's honored to anoint those feet with her wealth, her honor, and her tears. Now, again, I can't tell you that that woman that day in Jerusalem was the same woman, Mary, that anointed Jesus' feet in Bethany. But what I can tell you is Jesus rescued Mary just like he rescued that other woman. And he gave her grace and forgiveness when she deserved judgment and death. Simon, on the other hand, is no different than the Pharisees that fateful day in Jerusalem because he only saw the letter of the law and not the love behind the law. He was once a leper. Jesus restored to him everything that disease had taken away, and he kind of took it for granted. 
Now, sitting in his home, hosting Jesus, surrounded by the community, he only sees the sins and shortcomings of one lovingly serving Jesus. And Jesus, so gracious and honest, reveals to Simon the hardness of his heart. Simon neglected to show Jesus even the the basics of, of a host in that culture in that day and age. People didn't have Nikes back then. They had sandals. And you would get dust and grime and everything else on your feet. So it was natural that someone would wash your feet or at least give you water to wash your own feet. It was natural during that time to be greeted with a kiss or to be refreshed with oil upon your head. And he said, Simon, you haven't done any of that for me. But since I've entered this home, this woman has not stopped washing my feet with her tears, wiping it with her hair. She hasn't stopped kissing my feet and anointing my head and my feet with oil. The difference between Simon and Mary is clear. It's not their lack of sins. And Jesus admits that her sins are many. It's that her sins have been forgiven. And as a result, she's able to love much. But Simon, who's received little forgiveness, is lacking what Mary has, the ability to love more. So here's my invitation today. Jesus gave that woman a choice outside the temple, and I'm going to give you a choice as well. It's freely yours. I am not going to put any pressure on you or coerce you into doing any action you don't want to do. So let me say that clearly. As you hold this stone in your hand, you can keep it. You can take it home. You can keep it in your pocket. You can do whatever you want with it. It's a symbol of your right to bring justice, and it's the evidence of the hurt and pain that other people's sin has damaged you. It's yours. It's yours. Now, here's your option. You can bring your stone to the altar. If you look here, maybe you've been looking at it the whole time. There's stones here from the first service of people that have made the exchange that I've offered to them. You can give this stone to Jesus, and what you're symbolically doing is you're giving up your right to justice your way, your right to make others pay, and you're freeing yourself from the hurt and pain that they've put upon your life. You're going to unclench your fists, and you're going to lay it at the foot of the cross. And in turn, I want to bless you. Once you give up your stone for vengeance, you're able to receive the gift of forgiveness. The forgiveness of your own sins and shortcomings. Your list of sins. I mean, literally, today, Jesus, if he were standing before you, could look all around the room and write everybody's sin, and I'm sure there's not enough dust on the platform to encompass all our sins. But you know what the Bible tells us? That his blood wipes it all away like dust in the wind. So you can be free from sin and you can release others to Jesus that have hurt you and harmed you. And the symbol of forgiveness that I want to give you today is your own flask of anointing oil of pure nard. The same spice that Mary gave to Jesus that day as a symbol of her love 
and appreciation at his forgiveness and grace in her life. This same spice was applied to Jesus' head and feet and mixed with tears. And I want its aroma to remind you of Christ's love and forgiveness. I can't give you the vial, though, unless you release the stone. For those who are forgiven much, love much. So first and foremost, this gift is for you. For you to delight in Jesus with. But if you've been forgiven much, then you can love much. And so if you choose to receive this and give up your rights of justice and judgment to others, you now have the opportunity to use the same thing to love other people. You'll be equipped to anoint them with oil and pray over their healing in their life. You can take this and you can apply it to the doorpost of your house asking for God's blessing to be on your own home. And so when you feel like you're lost and you're alone and Jesus has forgotten about you or you're in a very broken place, just open it up and smell the nard and know that if Jesus forgave that woman and she was set free and those tears of pain became tears of joy, this is now yours and Jesus Christ's. Will you make the exchange? Will you make the exchange? I have enough for everyone. But I want you to make a choice. And I'm going to pray for you. Pastor Sean, if you would spread this out on this side of the altar, I'm going to go to the other. As we're preparing this response for you, I want to challenge you first and foremost that this is not has no power or meaning if it doesn't reflect what's in your heart. We have a baptism here in a few minutes. The same is true as I discussed it with my children. Baptism has no power in your heart and life if you're just going through the motions. And so that's why you are free from any coercion or, um, or, or any push from, of mine. I want you to do freely what God calls you to do. And so I'm going to pray for you now. If you'll pray with me. It's hard, Lord, to give up the stones. Every person in this room, if they've lived long enough, has been hurt deeply and been put into a box and suffered under the actions of others. And God, we've held on to these stones, reserving the right to bring judgment, that, that anger, that hate has hurt us instead of helped us. And today, Jesus, you want to free us. So whether we put ourselves in the place of the woman who's been caught in her sin, and we know, Lord Jesus, that we are at your mercy, God, I pray if there's anyone in this room that feels that way, just that way, that they would know that you do not condemn them, but that you love them, and they want to get, they, that you want them to get to the point where they will worship at your feet in all purity, not caring what anybody else thinks. That's your desire for their heart and life. And God, if there's anybody in the room today who feels more like a Pharisee, they've spent their life comparing themselves to others, and, and they haven't cared for people, and their heart is hardened, Lord, help them to release those stones today and to come to you in repentance uh, and reconciliation, Lord. And so, Lord Jesus, as the choice has to be made today, help us to give up 
what we can't take with us, give up what's hurting us and destroying us, and receive a gift of forgiveness and grace, and let this place be filled with the aroma of your love for us, as the aroma it was meant to be, to, to mask the scent of a decaying body, and now it is the aroma of the worship of the Savior of the universe. Let that aroma fill this place, and let us feel your presence, and forever be set free. In your name we pray, amen. As the lights dim down and uh, we prepare to play the music, you respond as Jesus leads you.